so we do have a really exciting lineup coming up for January. I thought I would just give some information about the latest news in special education that I was able to find. Um, first of all, I just thought we would start off by getting to know our current director of OSEP. That's the Office of Special Education Programs. Her name is Valerie C. Williams. And as you know, may know, the director is responsible for authorizing any formal grants to states under IDA, in other words, authorizing federal fund funding for the states. She has served six years as a senior director of the government relations and at the National Association of State Directors of Special Education. She was born in New Mexico, but I'm really excited about this. She was raised in Prince George's County, Maryland, just like I was. And she has a bachelor's degree in political economy and industrial societies from UC Berkeley, from UC Berkeley, and a master's degree in public management from Johns Hopkins. And she's worked with members of Congress on Capitol Hill. And guess what? She has a son with Down syndrome. So this is your director of the Office of Special Education. In case you're wondering who these people are that make these decisions, this is one of them. So um, she has letters to us to just sort of let us know about the vision of special education, what they're trying to accomplish. She pointed out recently that we have just celebrated 47 years in special education services. So as you may know, the law was first passed on November 18, 1975. She says that the data collected support reports that there are both positive and troubling trends for children with disabilities in special education. First, she says the number of children with disabilities who spend 80% or more of their day in general education classrooms has reached a high of more than 55% in the 2020-2021 school year. But there are questions about how their needs are being met. She's hoping that they are being offered meaningful, supportive, and safe, inclusive experiences. She states that the rate of students with disabilities who exit high school with a regular diploma has increased from 52% in 1995 to 72% in 2018. However, children with disabilities from preschool through high school are suspended at higher rates than their peers without disabilities. And black children with disabilities account for more than 40% of children who are suspended uh, out of school or expelled for more than 10 days. Uh, students with disabilities served under IDEA make up 80% of students subjected to physical restraint and 77% of students subjected to seclusion. So she says we need a focus on increasing funding to reduce exclusionary discipline, to address personnel shortages, and to strengthen supports for students transitioning out of high school. She would like to help find ways to promote strategies that attract, prepare, and retain personnel who have knowledge and skills to provide effective interventions. The blueprint for success, she says, is making graduation a statewide priority, striving for gradual increases over time, and creating early warning systems in earlier grades, as well as using data to drive decisions. 
So it's important here to remember a quote by Jim Walsh that I really like. He says, it's the code of conduct that drives what you do to a student, but uh, the BIP is and the IEP is what you do for the student. So he provides a toolbox that of uh, procedures to follow to avoid disagreements and that are related to discipline. He says, again, the BIP is never about what you do to a student, but it's what you do for the student. So to access the toolbox, you do have to subscribe to the Law Dog, where he gives you a daily newsletter and a personal weekly Zoom meeting. Um, or a live, a live weekly Zoom meeting. And so as you know, we are going to be speaking to Jim Walsh. Uh, first, we're going to have uh, Jack Fletcher and then Jim Walsh. So Jim Walsh will be speaking to us on January 20th, 23. And I picked a couple of cases that Walsh reviewed to tell you about. I just thought these were kind of interesting. I thought I'd give you a little overview of some of these cases that he reviews. August 22nd, 2022, Round Rock ISD lost a case with an Amy M regarding a shortened school day. Based on this recent, recent court decision, he says to be sure to have an evaluation to explain how the student, um, how the students needs, um, the students needs are based on the unique circumstances. Round Rock ISD had a student they called Sophia who had migraines. And rather than offer homebound or a shortened school day, they filed truancy charges against the child and suggested that she that she homeschooled that she be homeschooled. And after all was said and done, the federal court ordered that the school district reimburse parents' tuition at a private school for a year, and also provide counseling fees for for the counseling they sought, and also pay for mileage and court fees. So uh, yeah, if you have a child that's sick a lot, a mother may anxiety, migraines, you, you may not be believing them. If they have doctor's information and they have uh, doctor's notes and things, the diagnosis, we really should be working with those children to see if how we can get them into school whatever way possible. Whether that would be a shortened school day or uh, working with a doctor for temporary periods of time to have them on homebound. So Walsh has been highlighting cases in which the courts do not support the idea of everyone being in special education. I like that. Um, so on August 4th, 2022, Mountain View Los Altos Union High School District in California won a federal court case with a family regarding child fine. In this case, the child made it to the 10th grade without special education or a 504 plan. In the last two years of high school, the child's parents placed her in a residential facility that did not provide educational services. So she was having some ideation, some thoughts of suicide and uh, some emotional struggles. The school district placed her on a 504 plan and did not do special education evaluation until after she got into the residential facility. And the results of that evaluation said she didn't need special education. The residential facility did provide academic support, which included structure, study periods, and planning. And the parents sued saying that special education um, was not provided. They, they really thought that she should have received special education. And the school district won because the court said that these services were not specially designed instruction because nothing suggested that any of this instruction that was adapted to 
that not any of the instruction that she received was adapted to content and content methodology or delivery of her general education curriculum. Specially designed instruction, he says, means that you change either what is taught or how something is taught. And he says that didn't really happen. Even though the district won, they got sued because they waited. They did the 504 first, and then they did special education. And he says that this case illustrates that 504 is not a less restrictive environment than special education. So a lot of times you'll hear people say, well, maybe we should put them on a 504. That's least res less restrictive than special education. He says that LRE should never be discussed in either program until after you're in the program and you've talked about what services they should receive. Then at the end, you talk about the least restrictive environment in either program. Walsh says that if you're trying to decide between a 504 and IDEA, you should think about how a 504 uh, is addressing a major life activity that's impacting the child's school success in school. If that, he says that if that major life activity is learning or any of the first cousins of learning, he says, that's the way he puts it. Uh, so the first cousins of learning, he says, are reading, thinking, and concentrating then we should talk to parents about IDEA and offer to provide a special education evaluation or a PWN before we give them 504 services. He says that 504 does not satisfy our child find obligations and we shouldn't consider or think about LRE until we've evaluated, determined eligibility and developed a plan. Only then can we talk about LRE. He says that this case best illustrates why we should be doing full evaluations to determine whether or not a child is eligible for dyslexia services. Dyslexia instruction is usually changing the instruction or methodology of instruction, so it would be specially designed instruction for that reason. So this was a good segue into dyslexia, which we are talking about next week with Jack Fletcher. Next Friday, we have Dr. Fletcher talking to us about the idea of subtypes of dyslexia. He will answer the question of, are there subtypes of dyslexia? Is it a valid way to explain dyslexia? So a quick Google search of talks about, a quick Google search, I tried to find things that talked about subtypes of dyslexia. Sometimes they talk about four subtypes, sometimes three, sometimes 12. So I thought I'd give you a little rundown of what some of these are and uh, looked into those, like I said, either they're in, from the social media arena or the world of neurological theories. Again, this is just what's out there, I, the research that supports it. I try to give you a little bit of that too, but again, how, how valid some of these things are, this is just what's out there. So MedicineNet says there are four types of dyslexia phonological or dysphonetic or auditory dyslexia. All those are synonyms for each other. Phonological, dysphonetic, and auditory dyslexia, all three terms are one and the same, is where you have difficulty processing the sounds of individual letters and syllables and difficulty matching them with the written forms of the sounds. Second type that this website talks about, again, they're doing it from a medical point of view, surface dyslexia or another synonym for it is diciadetic, diciadetic dyslexia, or also another still synonym for that is visual dyslexia, 
dyslexia. Again, surface dyskinetic or visual dyslexia is difficulty recognizing whole words that results from vision issues or visual processing difficulties in the brain. So these kids have a hard time learning memorized words. Third type under this website is rapid naming deficit dyslexia or disfluent dyslexia. These students show deficits in both phonological processes and naming speed, and they have usually have low processing speed. Then, of course, there is the double deficit dyslexia. Uh, and this, these students show deficits in both phonological processes and naming speed, and they are the weakest readers. So, a, a interesting, uh, that's all I can say is interesting, interesting resource on this, EduBlocks, that's a website, explains that there was a researcher named Lendary et al. So that et al means there are other researchers, 2018, that debunked the idea of a double deficit, that the idea that a double deficit is based on biological or genetic factors and has more to do with the nature of our language. Lendary looked at the phonological processing and rapid naming of children who spoke five different languages. While rapid naming was a predictor for all the languages, phonological processing was not, suggesting that phonological processing may be less of a predictor than, than we originally thought. Wow, that's interesting. Okay, so there is also um, some interesting resource from Friedman and Colthort, 2018, about different types of supposed different types of dyslexia. Again, I don't want a bunch of messages saying there's no such thing as, you know, different subtypes of dyslexia. I'm just saying what's out there. I'm going to go ahead and take a quick um, minute to up to change this um, pen that I have up here. I have the pen of the biography of Valerie C. Williams, the director of our Office of Special Education uh, the program, programs. And I'm going to change it with this uh, link that I found that talks about these various different types of subtypes of dyslexia. There we go, got a new link here. So Friedman and Colthart, 2018, assert that there are types of dyslexia. They say the first person to talk about this was an educational psychologist named Helmer Michael Bust in 1965. He talked about auditory versus visual dyslexia. And there was a pediatric neurologist that came after him named Alina Botter, who published articles in the 1960s and 70s. She developed the idea of dysphonetic dyslexia versus developmental surface dyslexia in 1973. And, set, and so this Friedman and Coulthert say at the same time, there are other researchers who were trying to subtype dyslexia. They were researchers named... Marshall Newcomb in 1966 that offered a detailed description, coined the term deep dyslexia. And the research went on and on until several models of word reading were developed and tested. Fletcher does refer to these in his book, all of these models, and then there are different models of, so different models of word reading would be like pictures that tell you how a word goes from basically symbols that represent sounds that then represent words and then go to meaning to a process where kids just look at the whole word and derive meaning automatically from just seeing the printed word. 
So there's a whole process, you know, of a child and how they go, they make that progression from learning to, to see symbols as sounds, to seeing symbols as meaning. So in this uh, description, they kind of created different reasons why dyslexia might be um, categorized into different or different ways that dyslexia could be categorized into subtypes. Um, so you could base it on the causes. When you look at the causes, it could be primary dyslexia, which they said that primary dyslexia would is a term that reflect, refers to dyslexia that is developmental, but also runs in the family and is genetic. And secondary dyslexia, they say, is caused by problems with brain development during the earlier early stages of fetal development. That is also referred to as a type of developmental dyslexia. And then there's this general broader term of developmental dyslexia, which they define as the unexpected difficulty in reading for children who are otherwise intelligent, motivated, and, and they've received a good education. And then, of course, there's acquired dyslexia, which is a dyslexia resulting from some type of brain injury. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, neurological studies on different kinds of brain injuries and how that affects so dyslexia, um, you could also categorize it based on the symptoms. So um, phonological, a, a good resource is somebody named Smith in 1991, um, talked about phonological dyslexia and said these kids spell words like they sound. They'll have bizarre spellings. They'll have poor ability to sequence the sounds in the words and they have difficulty performing phonological processes like blending, segmenting, and deleting sounds. Then there's, like I said before, Newcomb and Marshall, 2017-2018, talk about surface dyslexia, limited sight. They say that these kids have limited sight vocabulary. They often lose their place. They'll also have, have difficulty recalling the shape of a letter. They'll admit, omit letters. Their eyes will move rapidly across the page in, in such a way that um, the sequencing of the letters gets mixed up. And so they have few words that are instantly recognized and they may over rely on sounding out sounds as well as um, as if they are seeing some common words for for the first time. So they'll, they'll maybe sound out words like so or if or the. Deep dyslexia, again, Mather and Windling 2012. If you haven't gotten the Mather and Windling book, um, that that's a pretty good book on dyslexia. Um, it's an essentials book. So if you know the essentials of cross battery, essentials of CSEP, cross, yeah, essential, there's all these essential books. Um, there is one on dyslexia by Mather and Windling. And of course, we're talking to Mad Mather on January 24th. So make a note of that. But um, deep dyslexia, according to Mather and Windling 2012, says they say that that's a more severe type of dyslexia accompanied by semantic errors like reading street as road or visual errors like reading badge for bandage. These students also misread functional words like is, the, and so. So according to Mather and Windling, the, deep, the term deep dyslexia refers to a, a acquired dyslexia. I don't know. I, I get this. I really would like to ask Fletcher a little bit more about how they determine what's acquired and what's developmental seems like all of them should be a developmental, but then I hear references to acquired as well. So then you have other types of dyslexia, like letter position dyslexia. This is where kids only pro process one letter at a time, even if it's in the word twice. So for example, the word drivers becomes divers because the child only can process the R once. 
and isn't able to process the R twice in drivers. In this type of dyslexia, the letters seem to float in the positions of the words. For example, like fried would, and fired could be confused. Weirdly enough, this only seems to happen in certain languages and not others. And they said that this is this is was only when children were asked to read migratable words. So what are we going to get a test that has some migratable words? Migratable words are words where you can move letters with, around within the word and make a different word, like fi fried and fired. fired. <laughs> now I can't even say it. Um, so attentional dyslexia. Is that not just ADHD? Um, but yeah, attentional dyslexia apparently is where letters migrate between neighboring words. So it's a little different. Uh, the final letter in one word might migrate to the final letter of the next word. So if they gave you the example they gave us two words such as cane and love next to each other could be misread as lane and love or cane and cove. That would be attentional dyslexia. And then there are the kids who do both letter position and word position errors. There is letter identity dyslexia as a deficit in the orthographic visual analysis and the function and responsibility responsible for creating abstract letter identities. They have trouble with letter naming and matching different forms of the same letter, like capital to lowercase, cursive to manuscript. Vowel letter dyslexia, children omit or substitute the vowels in words. And then neglect dyslexia. I love that. I thought neglect dyslexia meant like dyslexia you get when you don't teach kids, but no, that's not neglect dyslexia. Um, it's when kids visually neglect half of their visual field because of some kind of neurological damage. They might neglect the left side of the word or the right side of the word. And then there are the researchers that say using subtypes does not help guide assessment and does not help guide instruction either. These are the researchers who do not support cognitive testing as a practical way of addressing the needs of struggling readers. And then there's research that talks about comorbidities of learning disabilities. The best research I've, I've said it many times on here, there is an article and books and things by Peterson and Pennington at Al. They say that learning disabilities just aren't that specific. That's why we see a lot of children with dyslexia also having trouble with calculations and spelling. So if you want to hear more about the different subtypes of dyslexia and whether or not these are valid and what we should do with them and, you know, what all this stuff that's out there. Hey, if I'm reading it on the Internet, parents are, too. That's pretty worrisome if they they're finding out stuff that I don't know anything about. That's why we got to educate ourselves. So once again, January 27th will be Dr. Nancy Mather about, and she will be talking about her new test, the test of dyslexia. It is published by WPS. That is the same publishing company that you might recognize publishes the ABAS too. So I would love it if y'all could help me by getting your questions ready, blocking off these times. We need to hear this information. Just a quick sum up next week, Jack Fletcher on Friday the 13th. And then on Friday the 20th, Jim Walsh, you know, did I mention that the legislature is going to be is starting? The legislature in Texas only meets for five day, five months every two years. So only in the odd years, it will meet for five months from January to May. So that means everybody's gearing up and going to going to the legislature, presenting their 
you know, the, the advocates have been waiting for this moment to present their ideas for changes uh, to, to any of our regulations. So we got to be ready and know what we're looking for, what to expect. And I just thought he could give us some ideas about what to expect. And then January 27, again, we're talking to Nancy Mather about her new test, the test of dyslexia from WPS Publishing. So anybody got anything to share? I see Katie's got her hand up. I see, invite to see. It was something you said about consider 504 as least restrictive environment. So that should that like, tur I guess that discussion can come up unless they have an IEP already in place. Well, um, he's saying sit and go around saying that we want to put we want to only offer 504 because that's less restrictive than special ed. Um, he said any either process you go through, you would bring up the topic of least restrictive environment after you've already done an assessment. You've talked about the needs and services and so on. So that oh, okay. district kind of gotten, even though they ended up winning at the end, they did kind of get in trouble because they offered 504 before they offered special education. They did eventually offer, you know, the special education evaluation. It's just that the first, their first go-to was the 504 instead of the special education. Interesting. That's the way I understand. But we, I mean, that's yeah. something that I think we go around saying, like, oh, the least restrictive environment, you know. We, we well, I think it's even more about, like, like, whether or not it rises educational. Right. You broke up a little bit, but that's exactly right. Whether it's, if it's anxiety and that's why the child's staying home or um, headaches or whatever it is, just make sure we have the evaluation first and then talk about the, you know, what's least restrictive environment. All right. I'm going to see if Ed wants to come up here and give us his, uh, see if he has any commentary. <laughs> hey, Ed. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's going to be interesting next week. Uh, I've read, I mean, I've read a whole lot of stuff on Jack Fletcher and I've just pulled up a whole bunch of stuff uh, on the last couple of days about it. And you can, I mean, like going back 25 years, I, I don't think, I mean, it's going to be interesting to hear what he says. And I don't know the man personally. I know him all through his writing. I've only met him once, but I think the, uh, uh, from what I'm reading there, there is subtypes and there's a whole body of research that says there's subtypes so whether or not there are subtypes or not i don't i think that's just you know debatable but i think his position is going to be uh and i'm just reading this off of of a presentation he did there's no matter what what the subtype is there's no value added to it. and uh of testing and and uh you know it all it's all going to boil down to those cognitive uh the only thing that, that, that uh, you know, one of the questions I want to pose is he writes in uh, this one paper that language, I don't like that word, to language, you know, and the meaning it, it depends on the language. And the RTI models, I mean, you know, his hybrid model um, uh, is all about RTI. There's, there's no mention of testing language. And so I, I was curious to ask, these RTI only folks is, you know, we're, we have to test, we have to assess in, in things uh, that are, are related versus even things that are non-related. So to not test language uh, formally, um, I, I don't know how we can claim comprehensiveness, but it, but it's such a, it, for dyslexia, of course, we have to have the phonological component. Uh, so that's a question I want to pose is, is the RTI model uh, to not you know, how do you validly and reliably assess language? Just someone's opinion, you know, but I, I, there is some things that he writes about with this in relation to subtypes is what's it matter? You still got to, you still got to treat it. 
And uh, if you are going to give tests, his position is you don't need to give any cognitive tests. You just give a bunch of those precise achievement tests, not even a bunch, just a handful, which is kind of uh, it's kind of something we kind of say in course selective, except we still say you need the core set of tests. But there, his uh, idea of, of using testing for dyslexia and any other reading disability is just very few selective tools. So there's points of, of uh, agreement. My, my biggest thing with RTI, though, is we're just simply not ready to, in Texas, in one, any shape or form, to, to reliably use that ID. But his, uh, there's a lot of stuff I've been reading on him. I mean, there's, it's not like, uh, the, the one article, though, that we need to ask him about is his 2006 article. Because he also cites this article all the time. He wrote it with, oh, Karen and Denton, th these are UT folks, actually that there's just no distinction between the profiles of a kid with dyslexia and a kid without or or a reading disability and i'm like have you tested kids you know so I, I, that that's the article they usually point to uh to say cognitive tests are so i, I think definitely we got to ask him what is what is specifically the role of cognitive testing uh with dyslexia uh, because you it, We've had a 60% increase in the last five years of kids with dyslexia. And if we broaden what dyslexia is, we might as well just, you know, start them all in special ed and then get them out in general ed. But anyway, I'm going to shut up. This uh, you got a great uh, lineup, and I'm looking forward to listening to all of them. Um, so I think, because I've been trying to read Fletcher's book and understand it, um, reading it and understanding it is definitely two different. Uh, he akins... Uh, I mean, he has analogies that are, are really deep. Like he makes analogy between our, the way we learn how to read and some kind of electrical generator with yeah. a search box. Yeah. I, I'm like, I'm looking up and digging down a rabbit hole about how electric generators work. <laughs> um, but what, from what I understand, he feels like the role of cognitive testing research. And um, he, he says giving an IQ test is just, is not that it, about like it would hurt a kid or you know whatever he's just saying that the purpose of the the report is to guide instruction and um a lot of iq tests are being used to exclude kids from yes and, and he also has i mean there's he I, can, I don't know when this guy has time to do anything he's got so many uh, articles out there but he doesn't believe in cognitive profiles either i mean first of all it all started with the iq you know because we were in the iq achievement era and when he was, you know, he was a big dude back then in the field. But, you know, we we moved away from that to what we do now, either CSEP or even cross batteries. Really, we're looking at cognitive profiles. He doesn't believe in that either. Um, so. Well, I mean, I would go further to say not about believing in it. He, yeah. He, he, be, he, according to him, he would say that he has statistical data to statistical analysis that says that cognitive basing instruction on cognitive profiles does not have validity and data evidence-based results. So he, there's a whole field of evidence-based assessments. And yeah. so he's, yeah, the, the, it, he's, he has, I mean, he probably is, his level of understanding of statistical knowledge is way above, you know, he's talking about the, um, the intersection of two normal um, bell curves together and, you know, that these somehow explain subtypes. Yeah, of that, yeah. There's, there's, yeah, they get stuck in those statistics. The, 
like this really, you know, this statistical minutiae is what I call it. They just in the weeds with that. Cause we're, I'm a practitioner. I mean, I'm not a, re uh, he's a researcher and then there's so, you know, that's, that's how that goes. Um, well, but yeah, his, the statistics are, but he, he does believe there's a con there's underlying cognition. Uh, I, I mean, I'm reading some of his stuff right now. There's underlying cognitive issues. Why, why waste our time testing? But they always, all the RTI folks always say that the, uh, are, that, cognitive testing doesn't lead to intervention well my response always is well how does intervention lead to intervention you know if you're doing rti but besides uh that's not the purpose of the evaluation that's the second part of child find but but they, they forget that we have the first part that we have to say this this group of kids is is different than the other kids and we're really making a resource allocation decision these kids right here are different from the other kids to a degree that we need to get federal money to pay for more education, additional education, special aid. Um, and, but they always frame everything as this doesn't lead to intervention. This doesn't lead to intervention, but we, we have, uh, the purpose of the evaluation is to identify their needs, which will lead to intervention down there. But we also have to say, does this kid meet a criteria? And I don't think RTI is, is, a able to answer the first question of child find. I do think it really is necessary and needed, but it doesn't answer that first question of child find. It's just, it's, and it helps answer the second. Well, I think he would say that they, they go back to the manifestations and they, just like how you say that the academic achievement is formal academic achievements is actually a, a, re, yeah. a representative of cognition. Or a manifestation of cognition like it's all cognitive assessments that's yeah that's what he says too i mean i, I yeah. believe that i believe that i mean i i'm almost to the point uh to where uh, we're so uh have such a tsunami of referrals that uh and and there's another there's actually another model out there that really is not talked about a whole lot where it is just you don't test you test achievement and you do what we ter train test demand analysis and you you can all the cognitive factors are there so if you've got a kid who's low in reading comp well, you know, he's low in GCGF. So why test GCGF? You know, cause reading comp is, is reading, uh, decoding words and adding language to it. And you need GCGF to add language. And so why, why go test GCGF? What's it matter? We already have, we already know the kid can't read in class. That's GCGF and decoding. Well, why test it? And so, uh, but, but that would be, a, that would be a, a radical, especially for Texas. Cause we, we do love to test. Uh, there's another group of people that are down the road in TWU at uh, uh, Dan Miller and Neuropsych uh, and, and some of the RTI haters. They've, they've written a book about selective testing where we're talking about if you've got a kid with written expression problems, give them these four tests. That's all you need to give. There's nothing else. And that, that's kind of how what I've read about Fletcher. When he does say we, we can use tests, use them in a limited manner, like rapid picture naming, some kind of rapid naming task and some kind of phonological task. And that's it. Like two tests, two or three, two to four tests. That would be radical, wouldn't it? If we, well, if we did that. Well, I mean, if we had a good referral process, like a really yeah. good referral process. Yes. I, I do think we could come together and read that we don't have to test every cognitive, like all seven cognitive areas or eight now or whatever it is. Um, if we had a really good hypothesis and we went by our hypothesis, maybe that could be possible, but I agree with you 100%. I'm looking forward to Tammy's Bosco system to help us analyze all of the, uh, the 
information that the schools are already gathering. Yes, that's going to be, that is good. I'll synthesize all that and put it together. The, right. the, the problem is going to be just making sure because somebody inputs the data and, but uh, yeah, Bosco is going to be, Bosco going to be huge. That's going to be good. I'm so uh, proud of her for organizing that and doing that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. But yeah, going back to the cognitive thing, I was going to say that he akins it to doing an MRI on every kid. Maybe yeah. He does MRIs because he's a yeah. neuroscientist, but he's like, you wouldn't do an MRI on every yeah. kid because, first of all, when the information you get for the, from an MRI, you might know what, not know what you're really looking at. And yeah. second of all, that's really costly and expensive and doesn't, you know, in the end, it's not what you would use to determine how... Um, and, and I think also, you know, how to drive instruction, but I think also when you say that in intervention, how, how does intervention drive intervention? They do basically believe in a trial and error kind of um, yeah. process. So you would trial a, an intervention that you would think might work and um, based on whatever assessments you have. And then, you know, you yeah, know. And, but, but yeah, yeah. And, but the, the deal is, is, is the intervention's not working. So that's why we're going to refer. What is special ed? What what do we have in our secret room that's that's different? So we're, what are we gonna do? You got if we had a, if we get referred if like RTI how it's been written. What if we get a kid who's been reading individual phonics based instruction one on one with a reading specialist for six weeks and nothing works? That doesn't work. So they refer the kid and we test him and he qualifies. What are we gonna recommend for that kid? I, you know what, what's more intense than that? So. You know, the only thing we can do is instead really is is modify the expectations. And of course, we we can't do that because we can only take a few percent of a, only kids who are just so profound and severe are the ones that we can modify expectations for. So we're 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 stuck. I mean, that's that's what uh, uh, is the question that's always unanswered. I mean, if they did the intense instruction as RTI is written for a kid who can't read, we don't have any. What do we have different that we could do? Other than that, sometimes the reading specialist is better than the sped teacher or not better, more knowledgeable and specialized in reading than generic special ed teacher. I know they know more than, you know. Well, so. one thing I was, I've been going back, you know, since the time we talked to Ed Bur to Matthew Burns. Yeah. Uh, he's got some um, good summaries of some of his research on his websites uh, and mostly in form of YouTubes. Um, and he was talking about how um, we shouldn't be grouping kids for reading according to levels because um, the the validity of these levels are not, you know, the, the error with these levels is so big. And so, like, you might pull a kid and say today and do a half-hour assessment on a Fontes Pinnell and say, oh, well, he's on a level G. But then tomorrow you would pull them, you know, again and do another half hour assessment and maybe on a level M just because the error is so big. Yeah. Well, yeah, the variability. And, and, and that's, that's why we need to have, we do need RTI a hundred percent and prog and, and we need educators need to know how to, you had somebody on here that did that CBMs uh, to detect that variability is what we're doing working because the purpose of those CBMs is they're rapid and they're quick and they, they will give us those changes and then we can, adjust our instruction a lot quicker but we go here in, in most schools at nine week increments before we do any kind of adjustment you know of semesters and six weeks nine weeks grades but what i was interested in is he was saying not to group them by levels but to group them by their skill that they need oh and, yeah yeah 
and what he said was um that the the you know of course because we don't do this part of rti in texas a, a lot of times he said that tier one interventions are often the biggest impact of interventions and we don't really understand what tier one intervention is and yeah. um you know a lot of people refer to tier one as just being a intervention that you do for the whole, like this, whatever the general curriculum is, it's what everybody does. It's the exactly. whole school is t tier one, but that's, he said, that's not tier one. Tier one, he said was actually when you target um, to where to put the resources in a whole, like a whole classroom, like say maybe you do, you collect data. And if, um, if there's a significant number of children who aren't even reaching um, the, the median score, then that whole classroom needs an intervention in the whole classroom. So exactly. then you take a skill and you work on that in the whole classroom. That's tier one. It's not where you you just what it's whatever the whole district is doing. It's not the general curriculum. And so that like if we were doing some of this stuff, I just really feel like we wouldn't be doing so much tsunami of evaluations. And well, you know, yeah. Well, here's what back, we need to ask. Here's a good question to ask. Because and Matt Burns, uh, those guys are smart. I mean, it's, I've learned this, I've learned all this stuff from them. The uh, the issues that they're the the concerns I have is, and you can create get some studies of you can pick fifty kids, pull them out of a school under optimal conditions, and make RTI look great. But practically speaking, it's not going to happen. How do you teachers are? I think it's an unreasonable explanation. I mean, uh, expectation to really turn a tier one into my classroom is a tiered system of support, which it which it kind of should be, but um are we ready for that I, I ask i mean are we ready for that we are so good in texas uh in in providing reading instruction in kindergarten through sixth grade that we are retraining every single elementary teacher to, in reading i mean that's what is the reading academies for mm -hmm. to uh so uh it, yes it should be done and and boy optimal conditions but it's it's just not it's just not and so we need to build RTI systems that have protected time in them uh, to where the general ed teacher is not expected to do tier one, tier two. And what happens is what, what, what about the other kid? I mean, you're, uh, you create classrooms within a class, which is why I'm not really a big fan of, of inclusion for all kids, inclusion for some kids. But I, I, I observed a classroom the other day and I've been in this school about three or four times. And I see a special ed teacher working with four little kids in the corner in the classroom, and they just create a classroom within a classroom. But they, again, they're in a, they're in a, a little they're in those ivory towers of the research realm, and the practical world we all live in is messy compared to what could and should be done, and what this small study says. They do say that RTI is the hardest thing to put in place. Um, I, I have heard that, that it, it is very difficult. Oh, I agree. You know, my dissertation and my area of focus before learning disabilities was behavior and the three-tiered model supports of, of the um, positive behavior supports. And you would think if you, if you poll teachers, they're going to say their number one concerns are apathy of the kids and they talk back and they misbehave, but then getting buy-in from a school that just everybody said behavior is the problem. And then to get buy-in to say, hey, there's research that says if we structure your system like this, everything will be reduced. It's the toughest sell. Well, RTI is the same exact thing. You know, you, you what you know, if you ask all the teachers what's your concerns about their academics, well, I just these kids just are so low now. Just all of them are low. No, no, you know, they're all low. Okay. Well, how what if we did 
a whole structure of RTI where you did this intensely and you know, it is tough. I mean, that's, that's the problem. I mean, it's, it's hard. It's yeah. On paper, it all works. Yeah. And, um, I was going to say, you know, you know, I'm, um, no matter what, uh, even if it's hard, I'm, I'm always being RTI drum, but, um, I mean, I definitely was trained on, um, well, I I hadn't, I learned, I need to stop saying curriculum based measures, period. It's curriculum based measure instructional for instructional design, CBMID. So, um, because it's that you, you're not just, you're just giving curriculum based measures to a few kids who are in an intervention, but you're actually using that in the whole school to target instruction, oh, yeah, target yeah. interventions in certain places and actually using that information to create. Well, we, we should mandate, we should mandate screeners from, for all grades, uh, like, you know, like we do for, for dyslexia. All we got to do is dibbles. I mean, that's what the dyslexia screeners are anyway, are, are the first four tests of dibbles. Well, dibbles goes all the way up to eighth grade. Why don't we just screen everybody every year? We'll find those kids. And, and there could be what, what Burns was, and you were, you were saying earlier that sometimes the teachers, they don't have the, they don't know how far behind their kids are. Uh, they grade everything holistically. So they don't, you know, disabilities are hidden and they're hidden from teachers as, as well. So yeah, it would, it, CBMs have to go way beyond just so this, this, um, CBM for instructional design is close related, I guess, cousin to that is, um, DBI. Yeah, and um, the DBI. I guess apparently you can get DBI trained, and um, we have like people in each district that are DBI trained, and or not each district in each region, and yeah. um, and so apparently there's only like ten or twelve states that are on the DBI website, and Texas is one of them. And that was we're listening to the TEA. Uh, there's a TEA webinar about the DBI. And they said that they were actually getting started on, on doing DBI in Texas, but of course, COVID got in the way and yeah. created a standstill. So well, would, it is great. It is great, but but it's it's RTI. I mean, it's really intense RTI, a different name, and it's gonna it's it's dependent on general ed. It's not something special ed can roll on roll out. Yeah, and uh, and you know, people bring that up, and I always say, why do we have to departmentalize ourselves so much and be like, that's your job, this is my yeah. job? Shouldn't we all be working together to create um, school improvement programs? Yeah, we should. I know. You know, Dr. Tammy and I, uh, we used to. Her dissertation was on CBMs, and mine was on PBIS, and so RTI was a, and was an easy buy-in for us. And we used to train districts, whole districts, on RTI. And uh, the district, some of the districts we changed had data where they they re reduced their numbers of kids getting referred for SLD because they were able to serve them in general ed. But this the structure of the schools, you know, they have to make sure they have uh, protected time and screeners, and they don't. But they they don't they don't have progress monitoring, so they don't know how to make uh, they don't have any decision rules about who gets tier one or who gets tier two. They know how to universally screen uh with maps which is a big step but they do that three times a year and sometimes they still wait to fail you know they'll start mm -hmm. referring to you know it's like wow he wasn't doing good in the maps earlier in the year and you haven't had him in, in rti yet right. uh, assessment is is where a lot of i think is the uh elusive part for general ed is they just these disabilities remain hidden they remain hidden and we got to actively go find them with some well, tools and you know when we did before 2004, when we had just a discrepancy model, 
I feel like we're repeating, though, you know, our the whole history because the reason they rewrote the law was because they f- found too many kids or yeah. an inordinate amount of kids were going to be diagnosed as learning dis- disabled. Yeah, if it, you know, and it was like 50% of the kids in special ed were diagnosed with learning disabilities. Do you know what would be very interesting, and you, you'd be a good one to do this, I might do it myself. Is, is go find that president on special ed that was out in 03. And and if people read that now, 20 years later, boy, that'd be that'd be a nice little thing to do. I, I'll, I, if you schedule a schedule a time for me, I'll do a clubhouse for that. Okay. Um, was the president's at, what now? It was the president's commission on special education. And that was okay. done when George Bush was president. It can't, the, the report came out in 03, but it was done during his, uh, you know, it was done during his administration. But the, the reading that, first is called reading first, right? Program? No, it's not. It's not that. They're, that mm-hmm. came out at the same time. It's the okay. President's Commission on Special Education, and the authors of that. One of them is Jack Flat. I mean, and right. the other one is uh, Reed Lyon, is a big reading guy over at SMU. But it would be interesting to to look at that 20 years later. That document uh, is what what informed all the changes in 04, and where RTI was. And it's going to be, there's some language in there, and I'll, I'll do it, and I'll share it with your audience, that uh, um, we, are, we are headed to, to the same direction again, where the only answer to this tsunami of referrals is RTI. Uh, how much progress have we made in those? So uh, uh, I'll send you my calendar. I got to send me your I, I have February your 10th open, so just look at that. I've got them well, booked until right. February 3rd, so you just look at them. I'll, I'll email you. I'm good on the t- Okay, I'm, sounds I'm good. I'll put it on my calendar right now. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that'd be interesting to see where, you know, I, everybody's, that's why I kind of don't feel, uh, I don't feel like this is going to go nowhere. I feel like we're going to keep assessing and putting kids in special ed, assessing, and there's going to be so many kids in special ed to where, oh, somebody's going to realize it, and then they're going to, we got to rewrite the law and they're going to change the definition of learning disability and we're going to start all over again I, 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 you are, I mean, that's exactly my brain right there too and I, I share now when I'm, we are we are slowly well not slowly we are reaching going quickly pre-RTI uh, referral system because that was the referral system in those days I think that's in the report I'm not don't hold me to that but back in back in those days the pre-referral lasted boom you're in we don't, I mean, it's, uh, uh, our, our system is, is set up like it was 25 years. We have special ed or general ed and nothing in between. And that's what mm-hmm. RTI was in between. Mm-hmm. Now, um, one more thing before, before we close out, I just want to know, Ed, did you, have you listened to, um, to sold a story podcast? What was it called? I'm sorry. It's called sold a story. I, okay. Give me a little bit more information. I'll tell you if I have or not. I'm and so it's American um, American media, American public media, AEM. They're kind of like an NPR or a, some kind of public media, for, you know, pro, uh, organization. And um, they do investigative reporting. And there's a researcher. I don't know if you ever heard of the hard to read articles. Um, those came out around 2016, right as soon as we were going into corrective action. And I think those articles. Uh, you know, those along with the Houston Chronicle, all of that um, kind of prompted, you know, it kind of raised a lot of awareness about how we weren't putting kids with dyslexia in special ed. 
And so she has like a part two series. It's a six part series, a six part um, podcast. And it talks about the three queuing system and how this has caused so many kids to reconsider for specification and for disabilities wow. and me, all that. I would love to read that and hear that. Send that. Send me the, the link or send me the title of it. And I'll search it up. I'm yeah, it's, right it's very, very intriguing. I mean, it just leaves your jaw drop. It, it really goes, you know, there's a lot of commentary about um, Lucy Calkins, Fontes and, and Fontes and Pinnell and the Heineken oh, Okay, yes, publication. That's, that's where I saw, yeah, I, I did read some of that. I found it online. I'm talking about that Fontes and Pinnell being, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I'll, I'll send have to it read to on it to speak on it. Yes. Yeah, but it doesn't, I mean, like I got a kid just now I was testing and I was like, was not sounding the words out, was trying to guess. And, you know on the Wyatt how they say gobbledygloo? And yeah. if you don't know, gob I mean, gobbledygloo is not a word. You can't look at the picture. You can't use the context. You can't, <laughs> you know, does it sound right? Um, you can't, you, those strategies work. You've got to read gobbledygloo, you know. And uh, he got to that and he just kept struggling on that gobbledygloo. Yeah. <laughs> and, and but it's because, like, we haven't taught these kids how to sound out words or that that's the strategy they should they just mumble through it and um that's exactly the you know the kind of stuff we're talking about in that podcast you know how much of that is is you know we didn't teach it how much of it is and we can't just keep going on and on and on saying we believe you you gave great instruction we've got to start at something we gotta get some proof but absolutely yeah absolutely well it's five thirty somewhere all righty. <laughs> Y'all can stay. I've got to, I got to jump off because I'm heading no, to. No, me uh, too. Yeah, but, but it's what been a, great. No, it's a great conversation, Nadia. You always learn and uh, keep posting your stuff. All right. Thanks so much, everybody, for joining. Be sure to join in with Jack Fletcher.